Hey there, friends, and welcome back to the History Cash Podcast. Today, we're going to wrap up the Compassion series. We've been focusing specifically on good humans doing good things in times of crisis in history. I hope it's given you a bit of inspiration and some respite these last couple of months. We've discussed a lot from the Belfast Blitz to examples of compassion in the fossil record, and today the Compassion series is going to go out with a bang, because I'm going to give you four different stories before we end this series. Today we're going to begin with something that happened 108 years ago, work our way through World War I and II, and then end with something incredible that's going on today, because history is happening all the time even now. So here we go, the end of the Compassion series. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. History is full of examples of people who not only did something good when the world around them was in chaos, but did so at the risk and even expense of their own lives. Sometimes these events are global, sometimes they are localized disasters that change the lives of everyone involved in just moments. Around the world and throughout time, shipwrecks have often given rise to such life-changing and life-ending moments. I can't think of a shipwreck that is more iconic than that of the Titanic. And in the early morning hours of April 15, 1912, when it sank and over 1,500 out of approximately 2,229 people on board died, there were reports of a number of heroic acts. One that often gets overlooked is the story of the Titanic's engineers. On the world's largest Olympic-class ocean liner, the engineers had a job that required 24-hour, around-the-clock supervision. The engineers were responsible for the ship's three huge engines, the turbines which powered the propellers, as well as the pumps and the steering gear. They basically oversaw the entire mechanics of running the massive ship. Over 600 tons of coal a day had to be shoveled by hand into the ship's 159 furnaces, which, as you can imagine, could be a grueling job. On top of powering and maintaining the engines, the engineers were in charge of running the pumps and the electricity, which powered not only the lights on the ship, but the radio telegraph system as well. This system, known as wireless telegraphy at the time, was used to send and receive telegrams for passengers, as well as navigational information, which included weather reports and warnings of ice in the water. Warnings that were received, but ignored. Most of the engineers on the Titanic were young, in their 20s. They were led by Chief Engineer Joseph Bell, a 51-year-old father of four from Farlam, an English village in County Cumbria. He was an experienced engineer and, by all accounts, more than capable of handling the duties his job entailed, overseeing the running of the world's largest ship. On the night of April 14, 1912, the Titanic was traveling at around 21 knots, or a little over 24 miles an hour. That's as fast as the cruise ships we have today. 
When the infamous iceberg that would sink the ship was spotted at 11.40pm by the ship's lookouts, a message was quickly sent to the engineers. The message might have been a request for a full stop, or for the ship to turn full astern and reverse the engines. It's not clear. But no matter what the message was, it didn't matter. By the time the iceberg had been spotted, it was too late. The iceberg was dead ahead when the lookouts saw it looming over the water, and even if the engines had been reversed or turned off immediately, the ship would have still struck the berg. It took a half mile for the Titanic to come to a stop from 21 knots, and the berg dead ahead was much closer than that. There have been theories as to why the iceberg wasn't spotted sooner. The lookout crew had no binoculars. Maybe there was a false horizon, a haze, unseasonal ice traveling further south than the crew had expected. Whatever the reason, the ship was doomed before anyone even knew the iceberg was out there. Immediately after the collision, all engineers, including those not on duty at the time, were called to the engine room at the sound of an alarm bell. The engineers knew this ship, knew what it could handle and what it could not, and it became clear quickly to the engineers that there was no way to save the Titanic. Five of the ship's watertight compartments had been breached after impact, and the Titanic couldn't survive with more than four of them being flooded. There is no doubt that the engineers would have known this. They knew, quickly, that their ship was doomed. All they could do was delay the sinking and give the ship, the crew, and the passengers as much time as possible, because every minute counted. They would have been hoping that another ship was on the way, coming to the rescue, and the more time they could stay afloat, the more time the wireless operators could send out distress signals. Eventually, the Carpathia would come to the rescue from 58 miles or 107 kilometers away, arriving a little over an hour after the Titanic sank into the Atlantic. But it was far too late for most of the passengers and crew, most of whom would lose their lives. The engineer crew aboard the Titanic was probably the best on any ship in the world at the time. They had been hand-picked from White Star Line's fleet because of their excellent records, and every last one of them chose to stay in the bowels of the ship while it was sinking in order to keep the Titanic afloat as long as possible. Right after impact, the crew began pumping water from the flooding compartments to slow down the sinking. They also had to shut down the boilers that were not required to supply steam for the pumps, as keeping them under pressure or allowing frigid seawater to meet a hot boiler could have caused an explosion creating even more chaos and causing even more casualties. The engineers were biding time for everyone else below deck. While passengers and crew were scrambling for the lifeboats, the engineers, along with many firemen, greasers, and trimmers, were underneath the feet of those frantically trying to make their escape. No stars, no sky, just the steel and steam and rising water, ankle-deep at first then rising until it was impossible to do anything but swim or drown. Getting in and out of the engine room or the boiler rooms was a difficult task even in the best of conditions. 
the engineers were working inside of a complex series of passageways accessible by ladders, which were becoming impossible to climb as the ship began to rear up out of the sea before finally breaking in half. When the order to abandon ship was given, none of the engineers left their post. They kept the pumps running and the lights shining and the radio transmitting out distress signals until the moment before the ship went under. And every single one of them died. But because they kept working until the end, it's estimated that the Titanic was able to stay afloat for another hour. All in all, it took the Titanic about 2 hours and 40 minutes to sink. That extra hour made a huge difference. Most of the people on board the Titanic died. A little over 31% survived. The number of survivors listed varies from 705 to 713. If the engineers hadn't worked until the end, the number of survivors would probably have been much lower. No one knows the chaos experienced by the engineers in the deepest parts of the ship because no one survived to tell their story. But they would have known they were trapped, and they would have known that they were going to die, especially as the water kept rising, which would have made their escape impossible. Some of them probably drowned, but many were likely crushed to death, one by one, as the steam pipes burst, the machinery broke apart, and the boilers finally broke free when the ship snapped in two pieces right before it went under. There were 35 engineers fighting to keep the Titanic afloat. If you add in the firemen, greasers, and trimmers, the number of dead working below ship goes up to 244. 76% of the entire crew on board the Titanic died, which puts them at about the same percentage of third-class passengers who died. 61% of first-class passengers survived followed by 42% of standard-class passengers and only 24% of third-class passengers. 100% of the engineers died. And we know they continued working until the last possible second, even though they would have known escape was impossible, because we have hundreds of survivor accounts that tell us that the power stayed on until the end, something that only would have been possible with the engineers staying at their posts. During that infamous night of disaster and chaos and crisis, the engineers of the Titanic fought until the end for the sake of everyone else on that ship. Even though they knew it would mean their death, they did their duty to the last of them. I've spent the last couple of months searching for stories about heroic acts in history. So many of the examples I've found have taken place during World War II, and for good reason. There were a lot of people resisting the rise of Nazi power, many of them doing so even when it put their own lives at risk. I told one of these stories already in the episode on Miep Gies the woman who helped hide nine people, including Anne Frank, during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. The Dutch resistance to the Nazi occupation was strong, as it was in many places. During blitzes, Nazi occupations, and a raging war sweeping over the world just as it had only 21 years earlier during World War I, people everywhere were fighting back against Hitler's regime in every way they could. 
On September 1st, 1939, Poland became the first country invaded by Hitler, and there were citizens there who immediately went to work doing everything they could to thwart him. One of these people was a woman named Irina Sendler. Irina had been born in Warsaw in 1910 and raised just outside the city. Her father was a doctor, a dedicated one, and had a great influence on Irina, although he died of typhus, which he contracted from one of his patients when Irina was only seven years old. But his dedication to helping others inspired Irina. She would comment on this later in life, saying, I was taught that if you see a person drowning, you must jump into the water to save them, whether you can swim or not. This mindset of hers would have an incredible impact on thousands of people during World War II. When the Nazis invaded Poland, Irina did everything she could to provide food and water to the Jewish population of Warsaw that had quickly become a target for Nazi brutality. Before the war, Warsaw had been a major center of Jewish life and culture in Poland, and had the largest Jewish population of any city in Europe at the time, at around 350,000. But Poland would eventually become the principal focus of military transport for the Germans, acting as a conduit for their front in Russia. Soon, providing supplies to families and individuals became impossible for Irina in the fall of 1940, when the German authorities established the Warsaw Ghetto. According to the Holocaust Encyclopedia of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, the entire Jewish population of Warsaw, which was about 30% of the city's entire population, was moved into the ghetto, which was then sealed off from the rest of the city. That means that 30% of the city's population was moved into 2.4% of the city's area. The conditions inside the ghetto were awful. People were starving and dying in unsanitary, overcrowded conditions where they were treated like anything but human beings. Soon, Jews from the neighboring towns were moved into the ghetto as well, which meant that over 400,000 people were crammed into a space of 1.3 square miles, an average of 7.2 people per room. Irina could no longer provide food and water to the Jewish population of Warsaw, but she utilized her status as a social worker to gain access to the ghetto regularly, and that's when she started secretly smuggling children out of the ghetto. Irina was a member of the Zagoda, a Polish resistance group. According to the Holocaust Education and Archive research team, during the war, Zagoda was able to, among other things, destroy 1,935 railway engines, 90 trains, blow up three bridges, and set fire to 237 German transport lines. Irina's form of resistance was more subtle. She was appointed the head of Zagoda's children division and went to work smuggling out as many children from the ghetto as she possibly could. Many of the children were starving or suffering from illness, and escape was their only chance at survival. By 1943, Irina had smuggled over 2,500 children out of the ghetto. She obviously had to be careful when doing this, which meant she had to come up with several ways of getting the children out unnoticed. 
She smuggled everything from newborns to teenagers and recruited a team of 20 people in an intricate secret network dedicated to saving the lives of children in the ghetto. Sometimes she would smuggle them through an old courthouse adjacent the ghetto. Other times she used the underground sewer system. At times, she would hide the children in luggage bags and have them carried out by trolley. She would place them in toolboxes or inside burlap sacks and packages in the bottom of her trunk. She would hide them under stretchers in ambulances or have them fake illness to get them out. Once clear of the ghetto, the children were sent to orphanages and religious institutions that were willing to take in vulnerable children. All of the children were given fake names before being sent to the orphanages in order to protect their true identities. Irina wrote down their real names and buried them under an apple tree inside of a jar in her backyard. All 2,500 of their names. Eventually, Irina's luck ran out. She was caught and arrested by the German authorities. They knew she was working for the Zagoda, so they tortured her for information, even breaking both her legs, demanding she give them the identities of other members of the resistance. But even under torture, all she gave them was false information. She was eventually sentenced to death, but some other members of Zagoda were able to bribe the prison guards to allow her to escape. And escape she did. Not wanting the public to know that they had let Irina slip through their fingers, the day after her escape, they announced she had been killed and shot, even printing posters about her fake death throughout Warsaw. But Irina was still very much alive. She went into hiding, and when the war was over, started trying to reconnect the children she had saved with their parents. Unfortunately, almost all of their parents had been killed during the Holocaust but their children lived on. After the war, she continued her work as a social worker. She was eventually recognized for her efforts and was the recipient of numerous humanitarian awards. In 2003, she received the Order of the White Eagle, Poland's highest civilian decoration, and was even a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. She lived to be 98 years old, passing away from pneumonia in 2008. Elzbieta Fikowska, a woman who had been smuggled out of the Warsaw Ghetto by Irina when she was only six months old, commented after Irina died, saying, Mrs. Sendler saved not only us, but also our children and grandchildren and the generations to come. Those 2,500 children became 2,500 adults, and they became their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. In this way, what she so bravely did when the world was on fire will echo through future generations whose hearts beat because a woman in Poland from 1940 to 1943 dared to do something good. This episode is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, Save the Children works every day to give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach. They do whatever it takes for children, every day and in times of crisis, 
transforming their lives and the future we share. Right now, the coronavirus is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime, and it threatens at-risk children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school and exposed to violence and exploitation, and child poverty is rising. With your support, SaveTheChildren.org can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. A donation of just $5 can make a difference. $5 can buy a baby's first book, providing comfort and inspiring a lifelong love of learning. $5 can also provide a nutritious breakfast and lunch for a child who usually relies on school for food. $50 can serve 10 hungry out-of-school children a nutritious breakfast and lunch. So check out savethechildren.org slash savekids and make a difference today. Now, back to the show. Most of the extraordinary acts I've discussed in this series have been done by ordinary people who were thrown into overwhelming situations through circumstances well beyond their control. They were ordinary people responding to chaos in extraordinary ways, and they all became a part of our remembered history by doing so. I want to talk now about another ordinary, unassuming individual. The incredible things he did, the danger he faced, and the molds he broke aren't what make him different from the other heroes I've discussed already. What sets him apart is the fact that he was a dog. A dog destined to become the most decorated dog in American history. Stubby the War Dog accomplished so much during his 18 months at war that when he died years after serving in the army, the New York Times published a 15-paragraph obituary for him. Most people of note weren't allowed that much space. Though he would live out most of his life being recognized as a hero, Stubby came from truly humble beginnings. Stubby was a stray, wandering the streets of New Haven, Connecticut in 1917, eating scraps and doing everything he could to survive each new day. He was small, but he was tough. A barrel-shaped terrier mix with big eyes, a stub for a tail, and a heart too big for his little body. In July of 1917, he began following a group of soldiers around as they trained on the grounds of Yale University. Members of the 102nd Infantry Regiment, they grew increasingly fond of the little mongrel that would watch them while they trained and approached them with increasing confidence. One of the young soldiers, a 25-year-old private named Robert Conroy, adopted Stubby, gave him his name, and even taught him how to salute. When the time came for Conroy and the rest of the soldiers to join the bloody fighting on the battlefields of France, Conroy couldn't bring himself to leave Stubby behind. The little stray had worn a doggo-shaped hole into his heart, and Conroy boldly and against orders decided to smuggle Stubby onto the ship with him, and the two headed to the front together. But it wasn't easy hiding a dog from his superior officers, and eventually Conroy and Stubby were caught by a commanding officer. When the commanding officer discovered Stubby, the little dog looked up at him and gave him a salute, which completely melted his heart and apparently rendered him speechless. 
Stubby was allowed to stay, and he became the official mascot of the 102nd Infantry. Stubby proved to be an excellent soldier and a life-saving member of the infantry. His superior sense of hearing allowed him to hear artillery shells as they whistled through the air before they landed, giving his fellow soldiers time to escape during bombardments. Early in the campaign, Stubby suffered a mustard gas attack, and he learned to associate that smell with danger. His heightened sense of smell helped him to detect mustard gas attacks before his human counterparts could, and he once saved an entire company by alerting the soldiers of the impending gas attack, which gave them just enough time to equip their gas masks. If the soldiers were asleep during an impending mustard gas attack, Stubby would run through the trenches, barking wildly and even biting soldiers awake before the attack. He no doubt saved many soldiers from the agony of poisoning this way. Stubby was also incredible at finding wounded soldiers on the battlefield. He would stay with the wounded soldiers until the medics came, or if the soldier was able, he would lead them back to the trenches. One night, a new soldier caught Stubby's attention. When Stubby saw the man, his ears flattened, his teeth bared, and he charged at the soldier, clamping his jaws onto the man's leg and refusing to let go. Stubby held on to the man's leg until other soldiers arrived, surprised to see their mascot so uncharacteristically attacking one of their own. It turns out the soldier Stubby had attacked was a German spy who had been mapping out the trenches at night. The spy had fooled the soldiers, but he couldn't fool Stubby. Stubby fought in 17 different battles in World War I. He was gassed, wounded, and saw some of the worst battles of the Great War. When he returned home, he returned a hero. He was honored with medals and awards, and even met three different American presidents, those being Woodrow Wilson, Calvin Coolidge, and Warren G. Harding. Conroy took care of Stubby for the rest of the dog's life. When he finally passed away years later, he did so in Conroy's arms. After his death, Stubby was stuffed and is now in the collection of the Smithsonian. Conroy never owned another dog after Stubby died. When asked why, he just said that Stubby was so special, so unique, he couldn't imagine another dog ever taking his place. Stubby, the dog who went from stray to fame, was a war hero. But more importantly, he was a true friend. He was, and I say this with true sincerity, a good boy. History is happening right now. The COVID pandemic will be in history books. And just like in every single disaster, war, pandemic, upheaval that has happened before, people everywhere have stepped up to do some good in the midst of it. And I can't end this series without talking about at least one of these instances, because the whole point of the Compassion series has been to share stories of good people doing good things in times just like these. In early March of this year, when New York was on its way to becoming the hardest hit with the pandemic, many of the city's most vulnerable citizens, including the elderly, the disabled, and the immunocompromised, were unable to safely buy groceries, prescriptions, and other necessities they needed. 
three healthy 20-somethings, Simone Policano, Liam Elkind, and Healy Chait, decided to do something about it. It's possible I've mispronounced all those names. They began delivering supplies and medicines to those who needed it, those who were unable to safely navigate through grocery store lines wrapping around city blocks and overcrowded stores full of people panic-buying supplies. Utilizing social media, within 72 hours, they had amassed 1,300 volunteers to deliver goods to New York's most vulnerable. Today, that number of volunteers has grown to over 10,000. They call themselves Invisible Hands, and they are still working, right now. They have thousands of runners on the ground delivering supplies, they have call center operators, volunteers facilitating the process of matching recipients and runners, and they even have a website where you can request help if you need it, or sign up to volunteer if you can. That website is invisiblehands.org, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Human beings are complicated. We are constantly in a state of looking out for ourselves while also trying to look out after others. There is a war going on inside each one of us between selfishness and compassion. At least it can feel that way in times like these. Sometimes selfishness wins people over, yes. We all know someone somewhere that seems to be the poster child for selfish behavior. But I think especially after researching so many instances where people throughout time have put their own safety and lives on the line to protect others, the people who are looking out for only themselves are the minority. You might disagree with me, and that's okay. I know I'm a bit of a cheeseball when it comes to hoping for the best in people. And while this pandemic has shown us some of the worst behaviors we've seen in some time, it's also shown us some of the best. It's easy to fall into the trap of tribalism, isn't it? But that doesn't really get us anywhere, does it? In my final Doogie Hauser typing out his thoughts at the end of the episode tirade, I'll end this series by sharing that we're wired to survive, and sometimes we think that means if we're going to make it out alive, other people can't. It's us or them. It's me or that guy. But that way of thinking is unsustainable. And history has shown, time and time again, that we're capable of so much more when we cooperate. So let's be tribe human. Tribe Earth. We'll get through this, and honestly, we can probably get through anything, as long as we get through it together. That brings the Compassion series to an end. I know it got a little touchy-feely at the end, but I couldn't help it. I've just been so inspired by these stories the last couple of months. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope my intention of giving you a bit of an inspirational lift with these stories made your day just a little bit better. Next time, you'll be getting the first episode in a new series highlighting one of the most interesting and influential musicians of all time, whose historic and epic life was even more intense than his music. Even if you've never heard his name, you've probably heard his music in some form at some point, and you've probably liked it. You can find out who he is in two weeks, or head to my Patreon page to find out now. If you're not a patron and you'd like to help support the show for as little as a dollar a month, you can sign up at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. Every single cent makes a difference in helping me to write, produce, 
and research these episodes. Each show, especially the in-depth series I do, take up as much time as my day job does. Sometimes more. So all support matters. Reviews, subscribers, and downloads mean so much. So thank you for taking the time to listen today. It makes all this feel like it's worth it. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. I've been your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and until we meet again, my dear wandering stars of podcast land, go make some history.